The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott, and welcome, everybody. On this Monday, coronavirus is sending stocks surging today with the Dow and S&P having their strongest day in more than a month. All three indices are now up for the third straight day and positive for May so far. A big rally in oils, you can see, is also helping sentiment right now. Crude is around $32 a barrel. We're going to have a whole lot more on that in just a moment. But take a look at the sectors uh, and the markets first so we can see those gains that I'm talking about. The Dow is up 824 points. It's a 3.4%, 3 3.5% gain now practically. 86 points higher for the S&P, a 3% gain. The Nasdaq, interestingly, is now the laggard having outperformed for much of the recovery up until this point. It's up 2.3% today. So I mentioned the sectors. Pretty much everybody is rallying. Uh, Take a look here. As you can see behind me, we're actually leading the way with energy today with a 7% gain. Financials are also among the best performers, up 5%. Industrials up 6%. So some of the least liked parts of the market are leading the way back. Healthcare is actually the least strong performer today. Still, it's all in the green healthcare of 1.3%. As you might have discerned, the reopening trade, uh, we've seen these trades all day, some remarkable double-digit gains here. That's also really leading the way higher. Let's get a whole lot more on that right now from our Bob Bassani. Bob? And uh, Kelly, this is a triple whammy today. We had positive, generally positive comments from Jay Powell last night. We had uh, positive comments, of course, from Moderna on the vaccine. And then we've got a nice move in oil. In fact, a nice move in commodity stocks. The metals are all also moving. And all of this is on medical breakthrough hopes. Remember, hopes for the reopening, medical breakthrough, Fed intervention. Those are the big three that move the market. Just take a look at travel and entertainment stocks. Here's a very simple way to look at the market. How's the hotels doing today? And they're all up. And the airlines, remember, the airlines are burning through cash like crazy right now. So to get any kind of rally, that's pretty optimistic. They've gone essentially nowhere. They have one or two day rallies, but there's no breakout at all in the airlines or the transports. Also rallying, speaking of no breakouts, energy stocks. This has been a heartbreaker for really four or five years. They're all up today, particularly expiration of production names. Again, though, no breakouts. They get occasional rallies, but they're not really breaking out in any major way. So what are the sorts of funds? Where are people getting the money to buy all this other stuff? Remember all that stay-at-home stuff that did so well, like Zoom, for example, and some of the food stocks, Campbell and Kroger and Clorox. Uh, they're a little, a little bit weaker today. Finally, I just want to note on the S&P 500, we're starting to break out a little. I said before, 29.39, that was the old recent high at the, uh, at the end of April. We've broken out above that. We can close above that. Now we're into uh, March at these levels. And yeah, this kind of thing does matter. It's not a 52-week high, not even close, but little breakouts like this, oh yeah. People notice. Guys, back to you. Bob, you know where else we have a little breakout, but a significant one today is shares of Chipotle. They're only up 3%, but they just crossed above $1,000 a share for the first time, which, you know, we're... I guess we've all become used to these thousand dollar, you know, marks for, you know, for the average share. But for Chipotle today and and they've more than doubled off the lows. I mean, it's been a pretty strong, continued comeback for this stock. Yeah. And there's but there's another company that's a takeout story. So if people are going to be going out a little bit more, I mean, the other restaurants are also rallying today. Fast casual restaurants are all rallying pretty big today. So. Yeah, you know, you notice companies don't split their shares anymore. And that's a that's a bit of a problem overall. This is really used to be a very common trend 10, 20 years ago. But 
They just don't. That's why you get $1,000 stocks. Right. And that's where everybody goes to Robinhood and Schwab and all the rest of them to trade in $1 increments yeah. anyway. Bob Banks, our Bob Pisani. Now let's get to the breakthrough coronavirus story of the day. Shares of Moderna are surging 25% right now. The company releasing positive results from its first human trial for the potential COVID vaccine. Let's get to you-know-who, Meg Terrell here, uh, with the very latest to sort through what we really need to know about this. Hi, Meg. Hey, Kelly. Well, the analyst reaction starting to come in and J.P. Morgan's Corey Kazimov saying that Moderna's phase one results, quote, appear to be about as promising as one could hope for. But they are preliminary. Let's see what the data showed us. In that phase one trial, uh, initially, the company enrolled 45 participants who were between the ages of 18 and 55. They received two doses of this experimental vaccine one month apart. Now, all of those participants uh, did show that they created antibodies after being vaccinated. But what's important are what's called new neutralizing antibodies. Those are ones that actually block the virus from being able to infect cells. They only had data on eight patients uh, for the neutralizing antibodies, but they found all eight did develop those important antibodies. They said safety-wise, it was generally well tolerated. And now they're planning to start a phase three trial in July with the phase two trial planned to start uh, imminently. This is a timeline that we've really never seen before in vaccine development. Remember, they only started the first trial in March uh, after developing the sequence in January. Uh, now the question turns to manufacturing. Remember, they've signed on with Lanza to try to manufacture up to a billion doses of this per year. And since people get two doses, that would be enough for 500 million people. So in addition to manufacturing questions, there's also questions about price, something we asked CEO Stefan Bonsell about this morning on Squawk Box. Here's what he said. We need to start thinking about pricing. As you can appreciate, we're going to be very thoughtful. We know it's a pandemic. Uh, we know people are waiting for the product. And so we just have to figure out uh, what's uh, the right price. So, Kelly, they're thinking about this now, but he says they've been working at such speeds uh, on the project, they haven't really thought about it yet. So that's going to be the next major question. Back to you. You mentioned, Meg, that this is a timeline that we've never seen before, but I've also read that we've never actually had a vaccine result from this kind of scientific approach before. Again, I am no expert on the science here, but is that true that it's that the is it the RNA or the messenger RNA that that itself is completely unprecedented to have an approved vaccine? Yes, messenger RNA uh, has never been brought to market as a drug or as a vaccine. Uh, Moderna is one of the leaders in the technology and does have multiple other programs where they've shown later stage data than this. And it all appears promising, but you're right, it has not yet been brought across the finish line. So there are a lot of questions about the technology uh, being a brand new technology and about the virus being a brand new virus. True. No, it, I think it raises both reasons to maybe be cautious and uh, optimistic, but we're going to talk to Michael Yee about that next block. Meg, thanks for now. We appreciate it. Meg Terrell with the latest there. That Moderna news, by the way, came on the heels of some reassuring remarks from the Federal Reserve Chairman on 60 Minutes last night. Here's Jay Powell sounding optimistic about the recovery. In the long run, and even in the medium run, you wouldn't want to bet against the American economy. This economy will recover. It may take a while. It may take a period of time. It could stretch through the end of next year. We really don't know. 
Chair Powell added that the Fed is not out of ammunition, not by a long shot. Of course, markets took notice of that. Joining me for more are David Hardin. He's the chief investment officer at Summit Global Investments. And Michael Kushma is chief investment officer for Global Fixed Income at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. David, I'll start with you and welcome to you both. Um, so we have a, a lot of things. We have the remarks from uh, Chair Powell. We have the Moderna news and so much more. Um, are we getting kind of too ahead of ourselves here about what this all means to the economy? Or are we frankly, you know, moving into that period of time where we're getting back to normal and the valuations make sense to you here? Well, from a valuation perspective, we're definitely not normal. We're still very, very high. But it is good news. It's welcome news. We all want this to work. We all hope it does work. So we're positive about that. Um, from a market's perspective, we've seen the market recover. And it's hard to fight against the Fed, right? But if you look at the economy, on the other hand, we're struggling. And there's a separation there. And that separation is larger than it's been in other down markets and other recessions. And it takes time. I wouldn't bet against America, that is for sure, but I would bet on some companies doing well in this time frame. So, I mean, we're still cautiously optimistic, looking for the buys and the right opportunities, but right. watching out for those overvalued stocks. As you say, uh, Amazon is a top holding. You like a lot of big health and pharma names. Zoetis uh, also has come up a lot. That's one of your favorites. But I want to go back to what you said about valuation, especially if these are some of the names that you like. When you say that we're still very, very high, are, Explain that a little bit more. I mean, are we are we high in the sense that we've been structurally higher for most of the last decade plus? Or do you think right now, compared with last year, valuations are too high? Well, I think from a standpoint of the market fundamentals, what earnings are happening, we have companies that are not earning as much as they need to. They are not having to be, you know, they're having struggles with employment. Uh, we have 35 million plus people unemployed right now. That's the economy. That's the reality of the fundamentals. When you have companies like Zoom, which is um, more than all seven of the top airlines combined, its valuation is very, very large. And the CEO came out and said, hey, we're not going to make too much money here off these clients. So I think you do have some companies that are overextended in this market, but you still have some. You mentioned Zoetis. I mean, we're a big uh, believer in healthcare and pharma and the big names out there like Eli Lilly and Advi. But Zoetis here, we like our pet friends. They increased 12% in the second quarter in that market share. Great balance sheet, great company, growing. That's a good name to yeah. be into now. No, I, but you know what? You can't train your dog to bring in. The, well, I guess you could train him to bring in the newspaper, but you couldn't do it with your cat. And I'm telling you, my two-year-old's getting pretty good at bringing in that newspaper. And I mean, it's, 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 like, it's like if my, my dog from growing up brought in the newspaper, I'd be just as amazed. Um, Michael, let me move on, talk to you a little bit about fixed income and what's happening on the bond yield side. Uh, Wednesday, we have the 20-year uh, note being auctioned for the first time ever. Uh, is this a, an appropriate move? Should we be doing more longer-term debt uh, for the U.S. economy? Or would markets support that? What are your thoughts? Well, it's a, a good question, and certainly there's a lot of government bond issuance by the U.S. Treasury as well as lots of other governments around the world to fund their fight and economic dislocations caused by the pandemic. So terming some of the debt out um, makes a lot of sense. I mean, 30-year Treasury is under 1 point, around 1.3 percent or so. So it's a very low long-term interest rate by any historical comparison. So terming it out makes sense because the long-term interest costs are not that high. On the other hand, if this is a short-term phenomena, do you want to lock in long-term debt at, um, at these yields for a long, long time? And it probably still makes sense from that perspective because they're so low. But so I think it's a good, a good policy of the Treasury to, to fund themselves across the maturity spectrum and not overload the Treasury bill market or the friends of the yield curve 
assuming yeah. that it'll go away in a short period of time. But it's putting somewhat pressure on long-term interest rates. Let me circle back also to what the Fed chair said last night. I mean, is it news to you that he says they'll, you know, they're never going to be out of ammunition? They can continue to do more to support these markets? I, I think that is not news to me. I'm an I'm a economist by training, and um, I'm a big believer that central banks have not unlimited, not, not an unlimited firepower, but certainly if you're the United States and, and the size of the United States economy, plus its status as a, the dollar as a status as a reserve currency, really help the U.S. Um, be able to run very aggressive policies, both fiscal and monetary. So effectively, the, the, the Fed can do what the Bank of Japan did and buy up every treasury that the, the treasury auctions along the way and fund the entire deficit and print money along the way with inflation going down, not mm-hmm. up. There's no immediate concerns about the inflationary consequences of what they're doing. So, yes, they can just keep printing money as long as they like, unless it causes some kind of major inflation problem. Yeah. All right. Got to leave it there. David, you're not investing in any energy names, are you? Not right now. We're still uh, cautious there. There are some good names out there that are creeping up like Chevron and Exxon with great balance sheets, but we're a little bit more looking at the consumer and it's very low demand in energy right now. Yeah. No, I I do that to set up our next discussion. Uh, But we don't see a lot of people wanting to pick energy right now. David Hardin and Michael Cushman, thank you both for the thoughts. We appreciate it today. Welcome. Thanks for having us, Kelly. And as I said, we're going to talk about oil. What a difference a month makes from negative $37 a barrel to positive 30 and change today, about 32 right now. We're up uh, 10 percent, just a little bit less than that right now, just on this session alone. And crude is now up about 80 percent in the past month. Let's bring in our own Brian Sullivan for some more analysis here. Brian, what's behind today's jump? I mean, there's a lot of things there. I mean, it's nice to see a little positive momentum in a sector that feels like the 1970s New Orleans Saints. I mean, nobody wants, you just heard your guest say that nobody wants to talk about energy. Well, let's talk about energy if we can. Okay, first off, there's a few things at work here, and nobody's saying energy prices are up, but we're at 30. We're not at zero, Kelly, and I think that's important. Number one, when you factor in OPEC plus, G20, US, you're probably looking at 17 to 17 and a half million barrels a day that have been taken off the market. The biggest, fastest global cut ever. The U.S., certainly a part of that. How much has been cut off? We don't really know because we don't have an OPEC that sets quotas. Most estimates are probably a million and a half barrels a day coming out of the United States. And with CapEx cuts, capital spending cuts, that's likely to fall again. The big thing that occurred, as we all know, a couple weeks ago, that fear of the tanks topping, running out of storage that sent that contract negative. That has been relieved. The tanks, they're still full, but they're not overflowing. And that has provided storage relief. And why aren't they overflowing? Because we're driving again. Look at this chart. This is the national. I like to look at sort of the city chart, but this is America in general. Mobility, red, driving, orange, walking, purple, mass transit. Look at the red. It is creeping back up to the baseline of where we were. Not as many people are commuting for work, Kelly, but... Mass transit still very low. We've talked about it. I believe you see used car sales take off. It's happening in China. Everyone's going to drive if they can. No one's going to be on mass transit. So gasoline demand has started to come back aggressively. Speaking of demand, U.S. producers, they are reducing supply massively, and they're doing that by cutting off future supply. Oil rigs, we talk about the rig count on your show every Friday at 1 o'clock. I want to reiterate these numbers, how dramatic they are. A year ago, More than 800 operating rigs today, below 300 and probably going lower. So, Kelly, we have increased demand, reduced supply, 
And everybody getting back behind the wheel, at least a little bit, that helps. No, I, you know, the easiest indicator of this is, you know, driving back and forth in the office every day, and it takes longer and longer, and there's more and more traffic. I've, I've heard even this idea from a lot of people who follow the auto sector about whether this will spur new car sales or obviously used car sales, just the idea that people don't want to do ride sharing. They don't want to use mass transit. Now, that would have a net kind of neutral effect on gasoline demand, I'd imagine, but maybe a hopeful sign for those who are in the business of selling cars. Well, I'll give you an anecdote. I mean, I've been talking about this for a couple of weeks now because my, my buddy owns a, used, uh, a car dealership in New Jersey, sold 61 cars in the last 10 days. A normal month is 60 cars. <laughs> so he did. He's he actually did more cars in the first 15 days of May than all of May of last year. It's a new car dealership. But one guy, he's booming. Other car dealers we've talked to, they're doing well as well because people want cars used or new. Yep, and we're going to hear a lot of stories about the stuff that's not coming back, so we always have to remind ourselves there's stuff that is uh, or that might benefit. Brian, thanks. We appreciate it. Uh, Such a huge turnaround story for oil today. That's Brian Sullivan. Coming up, investors big and small are flocking into biotech in huge numbers. We're going to look at the names they're flowing into and if you should follow in. And former NEC director Larry Lindsay says there are dangerous myths out there shaping government decision-making. If they're not dispelled, it could have severe consequences. He joins us with his warning ahead. And finally, take a look at some of the retail stocks that are soaring today. L Brands up 18%, Capri up 14%, PVH, RH all up more than 10%. The Exchange will be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Markets keep climbing. We're at session highs right now with the Dow up 872 points. And the Nasdaq is hitting a three-month high, although it's the relative laggard today up 2.6%. Let's get to the very latest now in the coronavirus pandemic. Over to Sue Herrera for our headlines. Sue? Thank you, Kelly. Good afternoon, everyone. New York Mayor Bill de Blasio says New York City probably will not start to reopen until next month, with construction, manufacturing, and landscaping leading the way in the first half of June. Target is extending Hero Pay, its $2 per hour temporary wage increase through July 4th. It goes to full and part-time hourly employees at stores and also at distribution centers. And American Express is telling employees working from home that they should plan on doing that through the rest of the year. It plans to gradually reopen offices, saying the work environment will be completely different than it was before sure that's going to be the case for a number of businesses. As always, you can get more on our coronavirus coverage by going to CNBC.com. Kelly, right. back to Sue, you. Sue, thank you very much. Sue Herrera with our very latest there. Let's get to shares of Delta Airlines, which are up 13 percent today, granted off a big decline the last couple months. The airline says it'll resume flying several major routes in June, albeit at a severely reduced capacity. Phil LeBeau is here with the very latest for us. Phil? Uh, Kelly, this is welcome news. Not a big surprise. We're starting to see this with a number of airlines, Delta included, where they are saying, "Okay, how much have we pulled back in the last 
several months or last couple of months, we're going to gradually start adding flights. So as you take a look at shares of Delta, keep in mind that as they add back a few flights on a few routes in June, they're still down 85% for the second quarter compared to the flight schedule last year. And that's likely going to be the case for the other major airlines as well. But the optimism about a potential vaccine for the coronavirus, whether it comes later this year, next year, you know, that optimism, which is fueling the whole market, that's pushing all of the airline stocks higher. Take a look at United, up more than 20 percent. You don't see a pop like that very often. And finally, take a look at shares of Ryanair. Now, today, the company's CEO was on CNBC in Europe, and he said that he is targeting 50 to 60 percent load factors this summer, if he gets 50 to 60 percent, he says he'll be happy with it as they slowly start to bring back travel and expect travel to resume in Europe. Kelly? Yeah. And Phil, we were just with Brian Sullivan a moment ago talking about car sales and how some people are looking to buy yep. a car to avoid ride sharing. The big three automakers are starting to reopen, but they face the additional challenge of doing so safely. So I guess the question is, you know, what's the balance between they think demand is coming back and also trying to make sure, uh, you know, that workers aren't going to get sick? Well, they've taken a number of steps. The safety protocols that have been put in place from temperature checks as they go in to staggered starts at the shifts to keeping the workers who are on the assembly line usually within a foot or two of each other, keeping them more spread out. Those have been well established over the last couple of weeks in terms of this is what we're going to do. That said, this is a gradual resumption of production here. What you're going to see is plants that may have had three shifts, starting only at two shifts, and then over the next several weeks, they'll add more uh, shifts and increase production. Take a look at Ford, GM, Fiat, Chrysler, also Toyota. The thing to keep in mind here is that they're all watching the parts production in Mexico. That is supposed to begin today. If that goes through without any problems, if you see the parts suppliers sending the parts up to uh, the U.S., then you'll see production increase. And finally, take a look at the auto dealers. They are running low on certain models. Kelly, we've talked about the demand for pickup trucks, full-size pickup trucks. Uh, you talk with dealers, and they will make it clear that people are looking for those right now. And so this helps that they're going to get these production, the production going, especially with pickup trucks, to help that supply on the dealer lots. Absolutely. Look at Group 1 up 16%. Phil, thanks very much. I appreciate it. Phil, both the latest on the airlines and the autos today. Coming up, the influence of the big banks and the rest of the financials is shrinking. The sector is now less than 10% of the S&P. We'll look at why investors are so wary ahead. Plus, everyone can be made financially whole from the lockdown. That's one of the big myths that former NEC director Larry Lindsay says we need to let go of. And if we don't, he warns there are big consequences. He'll join us to explain. And let's take a look at some of the stocks that are hitting all-time highs today. Chipotle, we mentioned, it's over $1,000 a share. Uh, but also PayPal, Home Depot, and NVIDIA. We're back in two. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. 
I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back. Let's get to Dom Chu for a check on the markets as we are near session highs and also some of today's biggest movers. Dom? All right. Just about there. What you're seeing right now, Kelly, is just about those session highs for the major indices with strong gains in the Dow, the S&P and NASDAQ. The NASDAQ is actually the laggard on the day, as you can see here, as the other indices play catch up. Now, over the last month, the NASDAQ is up 7 percent. The S&P is up 3 percent. The Dow is up around 1 percent. By the way, take a look at this intraday or one year to date chart of this, because what you're seeing is this area here has been a stalling out point over the last month or so. We'll see if we can break out to the upside. Now, from a sector perspective, energy, industrials, and financials leading the way higher. Meanwhile, you've got some of these laggards being communication services, healthcare, and consumer staples. Some of these stocks that you're going to want to watch today include those tied to the health of the U.S. consumer, restaurant stocks like Darden, the parent company of Olive Garden, and the Capitol Grill. Optimism there is, there is growing about the easing of business restrictions and people easing back into dining out. Home builders like Pulte also higher on the day after a slight bounce back in home builder sentiment in May. And shares of Uber are higher after the company continues its merger talks with Grubhub. Uber will also cut an additional 3,000 jobs and shut 25 offices. It previously announced a cut of 3,700 jobs. Kelly, back on May 6th. I'll send things back over to you. Yeah, that wall is harder than it looks, Dom. You make it look so easy. (laughs) It's just practice, Kelly. That's all it is. (laughs) Makes perfect. (laughs) Thank you, sir. Dominic Chu. The financials are enjoying a day in the green as well, but the sector has had a really rough go lately. In terms of weighting, they now make up less than 10% of the S&P 500. And more bad news in last week's 13F filings. Financials saw the largest drop in allocations for the second quarter in a row. Most notably, Berkshire Hathaway slashing its holdings in Goldman Sachs and trimming its position in J.P. Morgan Chase. But my next guest says that Buffett is still close to record bank holdings. With me now is Mike Mayo. He is the managing director and senior equity analyst at Wells Fargo. Mike, it's good to have you. Welcome. Thanks for having me. You know, it is really noteworthy that of all the things to be invested in, Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett, they continue to hold a lot of the banks. Yes, they trimmed J.P. Morgan and and sold Goldman, but the PNC, U.S. Bank, you know, Bank of America, the list goes on. Why do you think they continue to see value in this sector when they don't see that with the airlines and other distressed names? Well, there is a lot. Well, first, these are sobering times. Let's not miss the forest, the trees. You have record unemployment. We have bankruptcies. We have bank loan losses going up two to three times. Uh, and we have a deep U modeled out for a recovery. So there's nothing easy about this scenario. Having said that, the bank stock valuations are record low relative to the stock market as a whole when you look at their book value. So for starters, the valuations are, are quite incredible. By the way, the excitement really is building for bank stocks like ever since Friday night with Warren Buffett. And I'm seeing this firsthand. Attendance at our conference this week is up three times the level from a year ago. So investors are coming back to banks, and Warren Buffett has been there, and he's still there 97% of where he was before. Right. Yet, uh, he slashed most of Goldman Sachs, right. uh, but he also added to uh, U.S. Bancorp and PNC. And I'd say there's, there's three main reasons. Number sure. one, long term, the structural transition in the banking industry transcends the recession. Goliath is winning. Big banks are now serving customers better. Um, in fact, banks like PNC are accelerating 10 years of digital change in the last two months. Second would be the medium term. Banks have the strongest balance sheets in a generation, and that should allow them to survive this recession. And third, 
short term, and anyone who looks at normalized earnings over time, like a, a Warren Buffett, would say interest rates probably will not stay at this level forever. In fact, our firm's forecast is that the 10-year Treasury yield will double by the end of the year. Okay. And if that's the case, watch bank stocks go up not only over the, the long term, but also the short term. No, I'm, I'm so glad that you made that point because that's exactly where I wanted to pick up. You know, as I was thinking about this discussion, I saw a chart in the Wall Street Journal from over the weekend, Mike, that showed what the price to book was uh, for major Japanese banks. So what's the price to book of the American banks at this point, roughly speaking? Well, you're around like 70 percent of book value. Um, right. Could so so point seven point global point eight, yeah. Point, yeah, yeah. So if you go look, could it go lower? Yeah, we got down. To it's point three. It's point back. three in Japan, and this is my point. I'm the last person who thinks America is going to go the way of Japan and Europe and all that, except for when it comes to central bank policy. We're literally reading out of their playbook. I mean, everything that they've done, pretty much, we are now doing. So as much as I would love to say I totally get the financials here, it makes sense to me. I get why Berkshire's doing it. What if the, the way in which negative rates and the rest of it has hurt Europe, has hurt Japan and these, these bank valuations over a decade? I mean, how that could happen here, couldn't it? Well, look, if we've modeled out a V-shaped recovery, a U-shaped recovery, and an L-shaped recovery, and if we wind up having a recession and then Japan with zero rates for the next five years, then bank stocks today are fairly valued. So you get a free call option for anything better than that. And the comparison with Japan has come up more often with discussions uh, with investors. And I'd point out, number one, you know, I think the U.S. economy believes more in creative destruction. Uh, if it's bankruptcies, it's allowed to happen. You're mm-hmm. seeing it. Um, number two, uh, banks are much more efficient and willing to take the tough action with expenses when needed. Uh, number three, you certainly have a much more, you know, dynamic uh, economy with uh, you know, immigration when that's allowed to continue uh, once again. And number four, you have much more fee revenues. The largest banks' fees are almost half of revenues. That's a big difference. And number five, you have a lot more consumer loans that the Japanese banks uh, don't have. So uh, the comparison with Japan starts with the low-rate environment that we have today, but then I think it falls off a cliff. Right. And again, anything better than a Japan scenario, you should see these bank stocks up quite a bit over the next two those years. Are, those are great points. Mike, this is why uh, we go to the experts. Thank, thank you for joining me and uh, appreciate it. And again, some, some good thoughts there. You know, fee revenue, consumer loans in particular, uh, that does give us some food to think about. Mike Mayo, thank you, sir. He is the managing director at Wells Fargo Securities covering the banking sector. Still ahead, from the dollar stores to electronics to high-end furniture, we're going to get a look at some of today's bullish calls on retail as stocks across the board rallied today. Not everyone is positive about the economic recovery, though. Former director of the National Economic Council, Larry Lindsay, joins us with what's got him worried about the American psyche right now. As we head to break, take a look at some of the stay-at-home stocks. Peloton, Zoom, Slack, and Netflix, these have been the winners of the last couple of months. They are all lagging today. Peloton, down 8.5%. We're back at a couple. Welcome back to The Exchange. As states reopen across the country, Wall Street is getting bullish on the retail sector. Here are today's big calls. 
First up, Williams-Sonoma upgraded to outperform at Wedbush with a new target of $80. Wedbush is saying consumers are shifting their discretionary spending to where they're spending all of their time at their home and that the higher-end consumer, they say, will likely have sustained income. Shares of Williams-Sonoma are up 6%, just over $70 today. And then Best Buy, Telsey upgrading that stock to outperform and putting a $90 price target on it. We're at 86 right now. Uh, they're saying the work-from-home trend is here to stay, and that will spur electronics purchases. Try getting a laptop a few months ago. Uh, Telsey also cites Best Buy's e-commerce business, its healthy balance sheet, its strong management team as reasons to be bullish. Shares of Best Buy are up more than 10% today. And finally, Dollar General and Dollar Tree. Goldman initiating coverage of both with buy ratings, saying the dollar stores are well-positioned for the current economic uncertainty. And adding, as we've heard many times with these stores, that they're recession-proof. Goldman says unit growth, counter-cyclicality, and cash-strapped consumers are positive for these names. Dollar General is fractionally higher today, but it has been an outperformer up at $182 a share. And Dollar Tree is up more than 4%. And there you have it. Still ahead, Bank of America downgrading Square on concerns about small businesses surviving the economic downturn. So those shares are lower today, but digital payments broadly are attracting a new set of users, according to some new data. We'll have the numbers for you next. And sales of Michael Jordan memorabilia getting a boost from ESPN's Last Dance. The record-setting amount one collector paid for a game-worn pair of Jordans coming up. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Silver Tech not coming to the rescue today for Square anyway. The company's down 3% on a set of downgrades, including a double downgrade at Bank of America to underperform on valuation concerns amid uncertainty for smaller businesses. Now, this is at a time when digital offerings are generally getting a boost by one somewhat surprising segment of the population. Kate Rooney joins me now with more. Kate? Hey, Kelly. So PayPal is seeing a jump in older Americans trying out digital payments while they shelter in place. From March to April, people over 50 were PayPal's fastest-growing age group, and they spent more than their younger counterparts. CFO John Rainey explaining that trend at J.P. Morgan's annual tech conference last week. As we got into the back half of March and then into April, we started seeing some, some, some newer trends, trends some emerging trends, trends around, around the middle where um, not, not only were, were we seeing like, like the, the, the demographic slightly change, change with new users, users and, and then it being skewing more towards um, uh, silver tech or an older demographic. A few reasons for silver tech, as Rainey says, going digital. Cash is being perceived as a germ spreader and people, of course, are stuck at home forcing these transactions to happen online. This new demographic could be especially valuable for Venmo, which has 52 million users, and it's taken off largely a younger audience, but it's not profitable yet for its parent company. According to a recent AARP study, only 9% of older adult respondents use Venmo compared to nearly a third of younger adults. PayPal telling me they don't have plans to change their marketing strategy yet to go after silver tech. But the CFO is saying last week that he thinks these trends are sustainable. Kelly? I'm not saying anything. I'm just going to get myself in trouble. It just maybe proves I'm a boomer at heart if I struggle with Venmo. Uh, Kate, thanks. Kate Rooney informing us about silver tech. Meanwhile, the kids are still snapping up sneakers, especially those Jordans. Demand for Michael Jordan merchandise has seen an incredible surge thanks to the 10-part documentary about his career called The Last Dance. Eric Chemi has the numbers for us. Eric? 
Kelly, that's right. If Michael Jordan were a stock, analysts might have a buy rating on the former basketball icon. After the airing of ESPN and Netflix documentary The Last Dance, sales of nearly every product associated with the six-time NBA champion are soaring to new heights. In an online auction at Sotheby's yesterday, a pair of autographed Air Jordan 1s sold for a record $560,000, setting the new world record for any auctioned pair of sneakers. Companies like StockX are also seeing a pop. The secondary sneaker marketplace said an unsigned version of Air Jordan 1s are selling on the site at an average price of more than $7,000. That's more than double the price from before the documentary aired. It's not just sneakers, but also collectibles and memorabilia. Ken Golden from Golden Auctions tells CNBC a Jordan rookie card previously sold around $30,000. Now the price is about hundred grand. Fanatics says Michael Jordan merch is up over 900% since the show premiered. eBay said average one-day sales for Chicago Bulls items have spiked a staggering 5,000%. Experts say that while prices across are permanently elevated, there may be some cooling off. And for some fans and collectors that didn't get in on the action yet, it might be worth waiting. Kelly. I mean, every time they air this now going forward, I expect we'll see it over, you know, give it five or ten years, a whole nother wave. Eric, thanks very much. Eric Chemi. Up next, former National Economic Council Director Larry Lindsay will join us with his four dangerous myths about the coronavirus impact on the economy and what he says the road to recovery does look like. And the president meeting with restaurant executives this afternoon to discuss a path forward for the industry. Landry's chairman and CEO Tillman Fertitta will be there. He joins Closing Bell for a first on CNBC interview straight from that event. And he's not the only one. Restaurant brand CEO will also join. It all begins at 3 p.m. Eastern time. Stay with us. Welcome back. If we just stay locked down, the virus will disappear. Uh, That's one of the five myths that my next guest says uh, could interfere with the reopening of the U.S. economy. Here to talk about uh, the shape of the recovery and what government efforts should look like is Larry Lindsay. He's the Lindsay Group CEO, former director of the National Economic Council under George W. Bush. Uh, And Larry, it's great to have you with me today. Welcome. Thank you, Kelly. Appreciate it. You, I mean, the reason why you're talking about some of these myths here is I think to, to say to everybody, we can't wait for perfect uh, to start to reopen. And that's fine. But what do we do about a host of the issues? I know that they're working on potential liability shield in Congress. But, you know, getting business cons- uh, convinced that it's safe for them to reopen, that they're not going to regret doing so. I mean, that's going to be a difficult task. Well, I think it's up to the businessman to decide whether or not it's safe to reopen. It's not up to us to tell them whether to. And I think creating the option is the right way to go. You can't do better than that. So that being the case, Larry, what do you think is kind of the the way to go about reopening so that it's safe, so that it's phased, so that, you know, people aren't going to have to worry about uh, kind of the, the overhang of either legal issues or the health threat for their employees? I mean, anybody who has an elevator is trying to figure out what to do now. Oh, it's, it's hard. I've talked to my clients about that, and it is very difficult. A lot of them are spending a lot of money reconfiguring their internal space. Um, plus, of course, there's the elevator issue um, and exactly what to do with stores. And, um, but, you know, the best person to determine that is the person right on the spot. And uh, they know the case. And I really think we're making a mistake with one-size-fits-all solutions. And we should let individual businesses make the decision as best they can. Government can set down basic guidelines, but that's the 
that's about uh, all they can do. What do you think the kind of shape of the recovery is, as you can best guess it these days? Well, I think we're going to have uh, a gradual recovery, um, not in terms of the absolute percent changes quarter to quarter, which, of course, because we have a steep decline, and we're going to have uh, it's going to come back a little bit quicker. But relative to the size of the decline, I think it's going to take a while. I don't see it getting back to fourth quarter levels of GDP until the middle of next year. If it's the middle of next year, that would still be better than some of the forecasts and warnings right now, um, which on a slightly different piece of this, but on the unemployment rate, say it could be five years, it could be a decade before we're back you know, at pre-COVID unemployment levels. Um, do you think that that will prove true? And how, what can we do to try and make sure that the unemployment rate falls as quickly as it, as it rose? Well, pre-COVID uh, unemployment levels, remember, were at 50-year lows. So, um, you know, that, 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 we hope we can get anywhere close to that. But, um, you know, I think the unemployment rate will drop perhaps a point a month. Uh, this year and something less than that next year. And I think uh, May is going to be the worst month. And my number for May is 19%, but I know there are people uh, on both sides of that. Well, like you, we're still going to have double-digit unemployment at the, at the end of the year, probably. Absolutely. And that would be, you know, dropping a point a month. I mean, as, as strong as that is, that it's going to take us a while, you know, to get back down to kind of full strength. Let me run through some of your myths here about the kind of uh, coronavirus and the reopening. Myth number one, you say, is that if we just stay locked down, the virus will disappear, but viruses don't disappear. They don't work like that. Myth number two is that testing and tracking is the answer. You say, no way. Uh, Number three, everyone can be made financially whole from the lockdown. You said, no, they can't, unfortunately. Number four, the economic downside of staying shut down isn't so bad. Uh, You know, I mean, these these are some pretty as you say, kind of pretty major um, problems if, they're, if people are waiting for all of these things to come true as they prepare to reopen? Um, yes. Um, you'll have to remind me one after the other. But the first one is um, that we have this image that some have to just stay indoors with the virus to go away. How does it don't work that way? If we're lucky, maybe it will attenuate itself. I morph into something you know, less bad, and that actually happened to SARS. We never did anything else to SARS. We might be able to develop a treatment. That would be great. We might be able to uh, create a vaccine. Again, in that case, virus will still be out there. Um, we have yet to ever be able to create a, a vaccine against the coronavirus. Uh, so um, I'm a little bit less optimistic than many about our ability to do so. Well, the government, I think, has done a very good job of organizing private industry. And it just shows the strength of having private industry do it. And the last option, which is really the worst, is that the virus sticks around and we ultimately develop herd immunity. But the virus is not physically going away and just staying indoors won't make it do so. Yeah. Well, and Larry, I apologize. The connection is not as, as clear as we would have liked oh. uh, here to, to give your thoughts on it. No, and it's, it's too important. So I, I want to, you know, if you'll, if you'll, we'll, We'll clear it up. We'll have you come back. Uh, We'll run through it and and the rest of the issues of the day. Uh, But we really appreciate your time today, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Larry Lindsay is CEO of The Lindsay Group. Thanks for tuning into The Exchange today, everybody. Uh, That does it for us. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place. 
People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.